Morning, everybody. Lovely to be with you today. Uh, thank you for risking trusting me when some of you don't know me. I know that it is a big deal to open your heart, and I so appreciate it. In our home, we have, uh, Richard and I believe quite strongly with our kids that we are, we like super protective over what they're exposed to because we believe in something called the law of first exposure. That as our children are exposed to what marriage is, as they're exposed to what sex is, as they're exposed to what is the value of people with different skin color, as they're exposed to these things for the first time, it forms the way they think. And I'm sure that you can all agree now at, uh, as adults that we have to change the way we think no matter how protective our parents are, no matter what they've done to try and help us to see correctly, even if we grew up in godly homes, which many of us did not, yet we come into the kingdom of heaven and all our thoughts get put on their heads and we realize that so many things we see incorrectly. And the Bible says that we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And so this morning I've entitled this time together with new eyes, that God would help to redeem our worldview, to uh, he has purchased back a worldview for us so that we can see correctly. And specifically, I want to speak about what I'm going to call temple ethics. The Bible tells us that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so I want to talk about seeing our bodies rightly. How many of you would like to hear today about what we see when we see ourselves in the mirror? <laughs> oh, what a great topic. What do we see when we look at other people's bodies? How can we renew the way we think in this area? Because... I think most of us have a little bit of a love-hate relationship with the, the, the body that we see in the mirror, and some of us have uh, inappropriate relationships with the, with the way we see other people's bodies, men and women, and races and ages, and the way that we look at other people. And when Adam and Eve were first created, they seemed perfectly happy to wander around naked. They seemed to see themselves quite correctly. And even little babies, they, are so, they always wander around naked, well in Durban they do, and in summer they do here, I'm sure. And uh, I, I, one of our kids has got quite a prominent birthmark, and it never bothered him. He would wander around naked and wear his little shorts, uh, and it was absolutely fine. And then all of a sudden, one day, it did bother him. And he started to dress differently. And he started to even be interested in different sports so that he wouldn't have to expose this birthmark. What is it that causes us to see incorrectly, that changes the way we see? So let's ask God that he would redeem even that sensitive, secret little topic today, that we would see our bodies with new eyes. I think what is so important is that we first need to acknowledge that we see incorrectly. If we are not aware that our lenses are broken, we'll think that what we're seeing is correct, that that is what we are meant to be seeing, and that is what is out there, that is, that is correct. And I think it's difficult to acknowledge broken lenses sometimes, so I am going to give you permission to acknowledge your own broken lenses by admitting that my lenses towards my own body have been broken over the years. 
that as a teenage girl, I saw very wrongly some of the things about my body. As I grew up into a young woman, what I saw was not always helpful. The things that I gave myself to, the value that I gave my body, sometimes as I became a young mom and even an adult and some of the pressures that I was under, I allowed myself to depend on dependencies that were not right for my body. I allowed myself to be treated by other people in a way that was not right for my body. So I want to acknowledge broken lenses today. I want to put my hand up and say, I have not always seen my body or other people's bodies the way that God would have me see them today. We need to acknowledge broken lenses sometimes. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 says this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And that's why we're calling, we're, we're talking about temple ethics today, the Holy Spirit living in us. Can we see rightly this temple? Do you notice there that it doesn't say that I am the temple, that this body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but a temple of the Holy Spirit? And so it's not just about how I see myself but it's about how I see you as well. It's about how we see other people as well, temples of the Holy Spirit that we can sometimes look at judgmentally, look at lustfully, look at and put them in a box and see incorrectly what God sees when he looks at them. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 to 14 says this, for just as the body is one, this, this human body and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ's body. For in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. I was taught growing up that it was not a good idea to air my dirty laundry. Don't talk about private things. Don't talk in the public space, certainly not with a microphone, about what's going on in your family and what's going on in your own secret life. That's not a good thing to talk about. And I think I maybe overcompensated when I realized that we are one body and God started to transform my mind and renew my mind and help me to see rightly. And I so wanted to be a part of the church that I would just start sharing everything and oversharing sometimes so that I could have unity with the people of Christ. But I learned recently that when people are on an addiction recovery journey, that can sometimes be very sensitive, a very sensitive journey. And they are taught that vulnerability is essential but it is not opposed to confidentiality. That it is okay to have confidentiality as well. And so what that means is, I have a small circle of confidentiality. When I said to you my lenses were broken and I dealt with different things in my life, I didn't go into specific details. I didn't tell all of you exactly what was going on. So I'm allowed a sense of confidentiality, but we can still be vulnerable with each other. We can still admit a level of brokenness with each other, a level of needing the Holy Spirit to come and to change the way we think we're allowed to be vulnerable with one another. However, when it comes to, the, to temple ethics, when it comes to our bodies, sometimes if we are going to be vulnerable, confidentiality is robbed from us. There are sometimes 
those of us who want to come in, we want to come into the church, we want to be vulnerable, we want the life of God, we desperately need to be a part of this body, part of the temple, and yet we have to give up confidentiality in order to do that. And not because anyone's asking us to give up confidentiality, but because our own bodies are betraying what we're fighting against. Our own bodies are giving away what we're struggling with. And in order to come into this place and to have relationship with vulnerability with other people, they are going to see that our eyes are bloodshot and that our noses are red and perhaps that we have double chins and our clothes are too tight and everybody can see. Or everybody can see that our, our cheeks are gaunt now, we've got rings under our eyes, we're shaking, we've got traps on our arms. And there are so many people, so many of us are desperate for vulnerability, desperate for unity, desperate to be a part. But we have to lay down confidentiality, not because anyone's telling us to, but because our bodies are betraying us. What do we do with that in the church, friends? I believe that if we carry on reading Corinthians about one body, it tells us how to handle that. It carries on in verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Yeah, in life changes, those that are able to be vulnerable without compromising their confidentiality, do not lord it over. Those who have to lay down and give up confidentiality in order to come here and be vulnerable. On the contrary, here at Life Changes, we give greater honor to those who have had to expose themselves. We give greater honor. We deal with greater sensitivity. We deal with greater modesty to those who have to expose the pain and the brokenness in their lives in order to find healing. Here, you are welcome. I want to speak about a little bit of an allegory, if you like, an allegory like a, <laughs> Richard tells me people don't know that word, an allegory like a, a, a proverb, metaphor, an ongoing metaphor, that our bodies are, are, are like a country that we're, we come into, that as we're born, we're born into this great estate. We have this incredible inheritance, and this country has so much potential. In fact, this country, we'll call it the country of man's soul, has never been mapped before. You cannot map this country because its boundaries are endless. Its capacity to learn is endless. The treasures that are hidden within this country are yet to be discovered. There is so much beauty in this country. There is fertile ground for days that has not yet been cultivated. We are born into this magnificent potential. 
and we have governments in this country. And the funny thing, I think in all countries, the government is always blamed when things go wrong. And yet in this country, often that is a valid blame. <laughs> that our governance, let's call our will, the prime, the prime minister of the country is our will. And our will has got helpers. There's many other things that are part of governing this country. Some of the lower uh, members of government would be things like our appetite. Things like hunger. Hunger is important. It shows up when it's time to eat. It allows us to build up our, our country and be strong, build up our bodies, and it's also very important. Servants. But sometimes hunger can uh, become out of control and st can start to dominate. And hunger starts to get the ear of the prime minister and speaks and whispers and says, if, if you'll just put me in charge. And we start thinking about sweet treats or whatever is your fancy uh, in between meals. And hunger gets stronger and stronger as it gets more and more power and becomes gluttony and starts to rule over the country of Mansoul. And who knows that when we have tyrannical rulers and country, it is never a good thing. Always those with power need to be in submission, always. And so we have appetites like hunger, we have appetites like thirst. That seems like a very uh, easygoing kind of servant. Our thirst just, we have a natural thirst for cold water. We need to satisfy that. And yet sometimes our thirst can be exposed to different things, Coca-Cola and coffee and alcohol and can start to hunger for things that are not meant for this uh, servant to have. And as that servant starts to grow in its, in its desire for those things, they start to dominate. They start to rule our bodies and take control of our lives. The danger with uh, drunkenness is that it doesn't only start to destroy this man's soul, but even the neighboring countries, the neighboring man's souls, our spouses and our children and our parents are affected when thirst becomes a tyrannical ruler in our lives. We have servants like restlessness, helpful, gets us out of bed in the morning, gets us going. We want to work, we want to play, we want to uh, do things with our lives. Wonderful, but when restlessness takes over and we can never stop and we're always driven and we're always going and it starts to rule and we're just never able to settle and to find peace because it was never meant to rule. It was meant to work alongside with rest and rest steps in and tells restlessness to move out of the way, that it's my turn now, and it's time to sit down, and it's time to read a book, or even better, to have a sleep. And when we, when we give too much into rest, it becomes sloth, and all of these different rulers, these different, they're supposed to be servants in our country, supposed to be under the rule of the prime minister, but it can, they can become tyrannical rulers. So what do we do with that? What happens when we've got this beautiful estate, we're born into this incredible potential, uh, but we have these appetites, like the ones I've mentioned, uh, even sexual appetites, important to have a sexual appetite, not just for procreation, but also because our sexual intimacy get, exposes us to what it is to be intimate spiritually with each other and with God. It is, an, it is a, a relationship that brings its, its urge strong enough to take us out of our comfort zones and into a place of vulnerability, essentially important and yet it shouldn't rule. And when it rules, we're in terrible danger. What do we do when we've lost control of our kingdoms? How do we take control back? How do we come into these magnificent estates? I wanna talk about 
a young ruler, David. This is the same David that slew Goliath. Goliath was a giant coming up against God's people and lying to them and calling them things and calling them names and telling them they were nobodies and nothing, that they were cockroaches in his eyes. And David heard these lies and he said, you are speaking about the people of God. These lies are ridiculous. And he ended up conquering this giant. And this same David is anointed king over the kingdom of Israel. And yet, he cannot yet come into his kingdom. So he's got this wonderful estate, but he, there are giants in his land, and the, the current king of the land is going after his life. So what does David do in order to come into his land? What does he do along this journey before he can take control of the kingdom that is rightfully his? Two things. The very first thing he does is he gathers mates around him, and he runs straight to the house of God. This is what David does when he's running for his life and he has been promised a kingdom and he runs straight into the house of God. We're going to read from 1 Samuel verse 29 when David goes into the house of God and he asks for help. He needs food for the journey, he needs sustenance, and he needs weapons. He needs something to fight with to be able to come into his kingdom. So the priest gave him not just any bread, the holy bread. Look here, he asks for food, and he asks for weapons, and he's not just given any food, and he's not just given any weapons. The priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence of God, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day. Saul is the king who's trying to kill him. Detained before the Lord, his name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, this is the high priest that he's talking to, then have you not got a spear here or a sword at hand? For I've brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, the giant, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod, If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. Look here, David runs with his friends, with his mates, into the house of God, and he asks for help for his journey. He needs sustenance for his journey. He needs protection. He needs weapons to be able to fight back. And he is given the bread of the presence of God. And he's not just given any weapon, friends, he has given the weapon that was in the hands of the enemy. In the one that would say, you can't do it. You don't have what it takes. You'll never come into your kingdom. Into his hand, there is a God. There is a truth. There is a God who has conquered on your behalf. And he has given the very things that were trying to destroy him, the very weapons that were against him, are now in his hands. Friends, God wants to change the way you see. He wants you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Those very eyes that cause you to fall, those very eyes that cause you to see lustfully, those very eyes that cause you to judge others by their appearances, those very eyes that look in the mirror with hatred and judgment or with with glory those eyes he wants to turn them and put them into the hands of the one who is the truth teller 
the one who will help you to use those eyes to come into your kingdom, to see rightly, to understand what are the things that he has for you, what is the temple. This high priest gave his life to give David those breads and that, that bread and that weapon. Because you notice that verse in the middle said, Doeg, a servant of Saul, was watching. There was a judgmental observer watching David receive grace that he didn't believe was for him. He said, David is getting more than he deserves. David should not be getting the bread of the presence that's not for him. David should not be getting weapons in his hands. They're not for him. The judgmental observer is watching over him and ends up telling on the high priest. And the high priest and 85 of his family members lose their lives in order to equip David for this journey. Friends, I want you to know that you do have an incredible estate to come into, but you also have a high priest that has given his life so that you can come into your kingdom. Given his life so that the presence of God will go with you as you fight the giants in your land and the tyrannical rulers that your appetites have become, the giants that have come up against you. He has given your life to put weapons into your hands and to surround you by friends who will fight with you and fight for you. Jesus knows that his grace towards you is scandalous. He knows that. Jesus is aware that there will be people who see you being given grace when you have been addicted to pornography. There will be people who watch you being given grace when you have treated another woman's body or another man's body with lust or abuse and you're given grace. Jesus will, Jesus will die for you to walk into your kingdom even when those things that have come up to destroy your kingdom were appetites that are inside your own land, inside your own body, friends. And there will be those who judge the grace that you're given, and Jesus is okay with that. He is okay with you getting scandalous grace, scandalous grace, because he has freedom for you, friends. And I believe this morning that there are giants in some of your lives, giants in your lives of the way that you see, the way that you see yourself and the way that you see others, that there are giants that you cannot free yourself from. And Jesus would come alongside you and gather you with friends and give you his presence and give you weapons in your hands and walk you into freedom. In this church, there is a group that, that meets on a Monday and a Wednesday that does just that. It is called Exodus Recovery Skills. There is a group that walks people who have been addicted to pornography, who have been addicted to alcohol, who have been addicted to food, who have struggled with anorexia, who have struggled with their relationship with their bodies, who have been addicted to alcohol and to drugs, and who have used the temple wrongly, and this group can come around you, a group of friends, and equip you and give you skills to be able to walk into your future. You do not have to do this journey alone, friends. There are far too many of us that are believing that we have to keep our giants a secret. And yet, <laughs> vulnerability will free you 
this morning, friends. Vulnerability will free you in this journey. You know, this is a little bit of an obscure uh, story that I've mentioned here. David going, you may even not have heard it, even if you've been in church. David going into the temple and getting some bread and getting Goliath's sword. That might be a new story to you, but Jesus actually quotes this story in the New Testament. And do you know who he quotes it to? The judgmental observers. He quotes it to the judgmental observers, and they are the religious leaders of the day. And they believe that they are calling people to right morals. Don't sleep around. Don't watch pornography. Don't uh, view people incorrectly. Don't have sexual relations outside of marriage. Don't take drugs. Don't have alcohol. Don't overeat. Don't starve yourself. They are the judgmental observers that know the morals that are right and wrong. And Jesus speaks to them. And he says to them, you're not David in the story. You're not the priest in the story. You're Doeg. You're Doeg in the story. You, the one who calls my grace scandalous. Jesus is walking in the grain fields with his disciples when the religious leaders, the Pharisees, watch him and call his disciples out in Matthew 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, to Jesus, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, his friends on the journey, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, even the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless, because they work on the Sabbath, just like his disciples are picking grain on the Sabbath? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here, and Jesus introduces new temple ethics as he he lets them know that he has instituted a new era where the temple is the body of Christ, his body and those who will join themselves to him. Something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. In that moment, Jesus redefines what the temple is, and he brings them back to heaven's temple ethics. You see, morals, friends, is what is right and wrong, and there are black and white issues sometimes about what is right and wrong, but ethics, ethics is all our morals gathered together, what we believe about race, what we believe about sex, what we believe about the way we treat our bodies in the temple, what we believe about every of these different areas, what we believe about money, all those things gathered together, our system of morals is our ethics, and our system of morals determines how we see ourselves and others, and this system, when it's gathered all together, there's one overarching truth, one overarching law, moral, if you like, and it is this, I desire mercy and not sacrifice over all our morals. That word mercy that Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament is translated, the same word is translated loving kindness. I desire love. 
I desire loving kindness. I desire mercy. I desire grace more than sacrifice. Gather all the morals that you have, friends, and put them under the banner of love. Love, love. Jesus' banner over you this morning is love. All the rights and wrongs, yes, they're giants to be fought. Yes, there are wrongs to be beaten in our lives. But over it all is love. And that is the ethics of the temple. I desire mercy, steadfast love, and not sacrifice. This country of man's soul, this body, is not for sacrificing. It is not a worthy sacrifice anyway. You want to cut it? You want to punish it? You want to hate it? Friends, it's not a worthy sacrifice. There is one sacrifice that is worthy, and that is Jesus Christ, his perfect body. And Jesus threw the enemy under the bus when he said to the enemy, I've got a deal for you. All of their damaged man's souls estates, all of their damaged man's souls for my perfect one. And the enemy fell for the bait. And the enemy said, I'll take it. But he didn't know that in two nights and one full day, Jesus would win his body back again, win his estate back again. Your country has been bought. Your price has been paid. Jesus has bought all of our man's souls, and we have no longer any ability to sacrifice them because they belong to God. This body is not for hating. It's not for condemning. It's not for punishing. It's not for hurting. It's not for abusing. It's not for substituting into addictions. It's not for other people to lust after this body is a purchased temple of the Holy Spirit. That is what it is. Friends, will you just lay your own hands on your body for one second and say this temple is a beautiful purchased temple. God, fix my eyes. Change the way I see my body. God, would I not be substitute, would I not be given to lies anymore about this body? God, where there are giants to be slain in the body, let me not hate the estate that has giants in it. Let me love it. Let me give it into your hands. Would you fight with me? Would you gather friends around me? Would we slay the giants that are damaging this body? And the way that I see other bodies, God, I give it into your hands. Would you redeem my worldview about the temple of God today? Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Friends, if your body can be a temple of the Holy Spirit, then the number one most important thing that you can do for your body is invite the Holy Spirit to live in it, to give your body over to God. When you put your trust in Him as your Savior, then He gives you this, the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. And any time that you want to meet with the new King of man's soul, you just close your eyes. He's right inside of you. He is right with you to be able to fight the giants within the estate and without of the estate. He will fight those giants alongside you as friends gather, as your mind is renewed, as skills are put in your hands by your life groups, by the preaching, by the word of God, by these Exodus Recovery Skills Group, as those weapons are put in your hand. Slowly, the estate that he has bought is cultivated and recovered and conquered in Jesus' name.
I'm going to end with a story about my two little, two of our, our boys, our 10-year-old and 11-year-old. Uh, just the other day, they were sitting reading the Bible for, um, I'd, I'd given them both a passage to read, but I'd, I'd scheduled it a few weeks earlier, so I didn't know what they were reading. They were sitting in the lounge, 10-year-old boy, 11-year-old boy, reading a, a full adult Bible. Um, and as they finished the passage they were reading, the one said, wow. And the other one said, sheesh. And I thought, <laughs> What on earth have they read in this Bible that we think can only be understood by adults that has caused a 10-year-old and 11-year-old boy to exclaim in wonder, wow, sheesh. And I said, what did you read, boys? What was that? And they're reading this story about Jesus uh, sitting with his disciples. And this is, what they re- this is what it said in Matthew 9, verse 12. On hearing this, Jesus said, he's being judged again by judgmental observers, and he says, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Again, he says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I desire steadfast love, loving kindness, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Little boys who struggle their whole lives, they get in trouble all the time, that are always feeling like they're falling short, and they read in the Word of God, Mom, God loves the sinners. Mom, God loves the sick. He loves us when we're sick inside. Wow. He desires mercy for us, not sacrifice. He loves me, Mom. He loves me. He's not angry with me. Is not angry with you, beautiful people of God. God is not angry with you. Even with giants in your land, even where you have abused yourself, even when you have abused others, heartbroken but not angry. Those here who have started on a journey of vulnerability, well done. Those who have not yet walked into that, come, you are welcome here. You are welcome to slowly walk into vulnerability. And those who have had the courage to come even though they've had to leave their confidentiality outside, even though they've had to expose themselves, you are the heroes of the body of Christ. 